Welcome to the Hemang Pulse, the podcast where you get all information about hematology. I'm your host, Dr. Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist. I hope you've been listening to this podcast, supporting it, referring it to your friends and colleagues. Today's podcast is about acute myeloid leukemia, and I host Dr. Tina Batnagar from West Virginia University to talk about some fascinating research in AML pertaining to identifying various genomic aberrations between black and white AML patients. Welcome to the Hemang Pulse. Really appreciate you being with me today, but let's just kick it off by getting to know you a little bit more and let listeners know about you. Well, thank you, first of all, for the invitation and for the opportunity to be on your podcast. As you uh, as you mentioned, my area of interest is AML, and I am currently an associate professor of medicine at the West Virginia University Cancer Institute, and more specifically at Wheeling Hospital. And so uh, most of my research has been in the acute leukemia space and um, looking at pro- various prognostic uh, factors, as well as differences in mutational profiles between patients um, of diff- from different races. What got you into leukemia? Anything specific or just by, based on your training, what got you interested in the field? Yes. So I became interested in leukemia initially by watching human interest stories that aired on shows like 2020. And I thought it was fascinating to, um, there was something about patients who were struggling with leukemia that really resonated with me. And so I knew that I wanted in some way to take care of them when I eventually was in that position to do so. Um, Interestingly, when I was a third year medical student, the very first patient I ever saw on clinical rounds had acute promyelocytic leukemia. And I had the experience of kind of watching her experience from the time of diagnosis through her induction therapy and I really enjoyed the connection that you got to experience as the as the treating physician, even though I was just a med student at the time. Yeah, I can totally appreciate that. Um, and thanks for sharing these stories, Tina. Tina, I want to start a little bit a little bit more basic because um, you know we have a lot of clinicians that listen to the Hemang Pulse, and recently there has been a lot of chatter about the classification of acute myeloid leukemia. And uh, that there is a WHO classification, and there's another one that actually came out from the uh, the ICC. Or I mean, basically, help us understand what changes in terms of how you classify leukemia. Is it the same? What has changed? There's so much going on there. You're absolutely right. Even um, over the past five or six years, there have been a lot of changes in terms of how we classify leukemia. And I would say that the most significant changes have come about as a result of improvements and refinements in molecular characterization of AML. So when I was a med student, I don't, um, gene mutations at least were nowhere on my radar. Um, When we were trying to determine 
exactly how someone's AML was characterized. So when we were trying to figure out how to characterize someone's AML, it was very heavily uh, relied on the cytogenetic classification. So the different chromosomal changes within the leukemic blasts. And you could sort of classify patients into favorable, intermediate, or poor risk groups kind of based on that. At the time, about 50% of patients with AML had normal chromosomes in their leukemic blasts, and they were considered to be intermediate risk. And when you kind of delved into the outcomes of those patients, they were very variable. And so a lot of very smart people started asking themselves, there's got to be something deeper here that can further parse this group of patients out. And, um, and I think a lot of the work that has been done to define recurrent mutational aberrations in AML kind of stemmed from there. And so as a result, this has been reflected in the latest WHO classification and most recently in the European Leukemia Net classification, which was published for 2022, uh, just for reference, before the 2022 revisions in the European Leukemia Net or ELN classification system, the most recent one was in 2017. So basically within a span of six years, there was enough there to change the way that AML is classified. And so um, a lot of that is based on the recurring gene mutations that you see. And um, and so it's, it's changed a lot of things. I can delve into that deeper if you want. Yeah, but, but like, for example, like in terms of diagnosis, it used to be like in terms of to diagnose this, um, we look at the number of blasts in the bone marrow and the percent blasts. Uh, are we still there? Is it like 20%, 15%? Like what I recall when I was, believe it, when I was in residency and fellowship, Tina, that gives away my age, it was 30%. Yep. And then it got reduced to 20%. And now um, in the latest ELN classification, um, there one of the biggest changes is the fact that you don't necessarily need to have a 20% blast cutoff uh, to be diagnosed with AML. In fact, if you have 10% or more blasts and some mutation that is known to be recurring in AML, you can still get diagnosed with AML. So people who have core binding factor leukemias uh, associated with translocation 821 or inversion 16, um, even if they don't meet that 20% blast cutoff, if they have, the, I'm just using those as examples, there are several others, um, then they can be considered as diagnosed with AML. And I think in the field too, um, there has, you know, there's this spectrum of disease between myelodysplastic syndromes, high-grade myelodysplastic syndromes and AML. And if you sort of draw a hard line in the sand and say that 20% blasts are above in the blood or the bone marrow is considered AML, then what do you do with the patient who has 18% blasts in the bone marrow? Um, and I think a lot of people have recognized that high-grade MDS and patients who have between 10 and 19% blasts can very much behave like somebody who has AML, and that is reflected in the ELN 2022 criteria where there's a separate classification for those patients. And, and, uh, and when you look at percentages, I think sometimes percentages depend on who's actually uh, reading, right? I mean, I, I do think uh, it's a little bit not always uh, clear. You know, you, you could, um, I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe there's, uh, maybe there's data on the... Um, 
variability between pathologists or hematopathologists when it comes to reading this. But I like the idea that we're shifting away from the percentage, which I've always thought it's really arbitrary, and we're trying to look at something different. The, the, you mentioned a lot about the molecular subtype of acute myeloid leukemia, and uh, I'd like you just to talk a little bit about this in terms of how you look at this, but more importantly, maybe to take us through what you've done in terms of the differences on the molecular level between various races and ethnicities, which is something that you've actually done a lot of work at. Nowadays, it is standard to obtain next-generation sequencing studies on all newly diagnosed patients with AML. And the reason for that is for prognostication and to get a better sense of their underlying disease biology. So now all patients um, have some type of NGS done um, at the time of diagnosis. And in addition, this helps direct therapy because there are a number of molecular subgroups for which oral targeted treatments are available. Or even if they're not oral, there are other uh, potentially um, there are other treatments that we can potentially recommend. So um, so that's really what um, what we look at. I can delve into the gene mutations that seem to have the greatest prognostic impact in AML. Um, so NPM1 is, is generally considered a very good risk gene mutation, assuming that it does not occur in the presence of another gene mutation in a gene called FLT3, and more specifically, the FLT3 internal tandem duplication, or FLT3 ITD. And so those two, the DNMT, the NPM1, M1 and the FLT3 mutations are very common, seen in about 30% of patients with AML, and so they're important to know about. Um, in addition, the IDH1 and IDH2 mutation status is important because we have oral targeted therapies that specifically can be used for those patients, um, definitely in the relapsed refractory setting and for some older patients as well who have um, and who have those mutations. So, um, so those are always sort of important important to know up front. Um, in addition, TP53 is now well recognized as a very adverse gene mutation. It's seen in about 70% of people who have complex karyotypes and in about 10% of patients with AML that's newly diagnosed. And the reason I mention it is because there's a lot of interest in the AML community um, in a drug called Magrolimab, which is an anti-CD47 antibody, which has been studied in TP53, MDS, and AML. In addition, a lot of work has been done regarding chip mutations, which, uh, so DNMT3A, ASXL1, and TET2 um, are the three most common. And so that's also, um, you know, knowing whether or not a patient harbors those mutations can potentially provide some clues as to where their cancer potentially came from. So there are a whole panel of genes that are that are checked on patients and they help inform prognosis as well as treatment decisions. As you mentioned, one question that, um, that me and my colleagues when I was working at the Ohio State University had um, was whether or not there is a differential impact of these mutations based on patient race. 
And so um, we evaluated two separate data sets. Um, one data set contained information on black and white AML patients from the SEER registry. And we were looking at various socioeconomic status and as well as survival outcomes in, in black versus white patients, because historically it was noted that black AML patients had shorter overall survival. And for the longest time, this was believed to be attributed to um, structural racism, to access to different access to resources, possibly differences in treatment as well. And so, um, so we were, you know, we, we saw that even now in this era where AML is easier to drill down into and treatments have improved, that these survival disparities still exist at a population level. So to sort of remove some of the confounding factors, we then looked at a separate subset of patients. It was about 1,300 patients that were treated on CALGB alliance protocols. And um, of course, these are patients who were all treated on study. So that sort of removed that factor, that variable of differences in treatment. And what we saw was that remission rates were actually the same, even though people were getting the same treatments. And so um, the next question we had, particularly in younger uh AML patients, which at least in the field is, is currently defined as under 60, but is a little bit arbitrary. Um, we, we tried to figure out whether or not there were uh, differences in gene mutation profiles between black and white AML patients, basically trying to determine whether or not there was just there were differences in disease biology, and maybe even raising the question about whether or not genes that were you know, putative favorable genes or poor risk genes, whether they functioned differently or carried a different prognostic impact based on race. And so, um, so even in the CALGB data set, we saw that survival outcomes were worse um, for younger Black AML patients compared to white AML patients. Um, we saw a higher incidence, uh, a statistically significant higher incidence of IDH2 mutations in Black AML patients, a lower rate of WT1 mutations, and a higher, um, and a higher uh, incidence of NPM1 mutations. This finding with the NPM1 mutations was especially interesting because, as I mentioned earlier, NPM1 in the absence of a FLT3 ITD is considered favorable risk. So the question became, if you have Black patients with supposedly favorable risk molecular markers, and why are their outcomes worse? And we did look at a very small group. Um, I don't think that you can draw a whole lot of conclusions on this, and I think it deserves further work. But what we saw is that when you look at NPM1 mutated black patients and NPM1 mutated white patients, you did not have FLT3 ITD. The NPM1 mutated black patients actually had worse survival, even though this gene is considered to be good risk. Yeah, but so, they, yeah. Were they treated? Yes. The same therapy? They were treated on the Alliance trials, yes. But no, no, I know they were on the trial, but did you go back and look, did they receive... Did they get the full dose density? Did they get the same? Like you know, what I mean, uh, I mean, I, I want. So it seems like all of this was adjusted for. Exactly. So, so despite the fact that they received the same treatment, same chemo, same cycle, same everything, and they have the same exact aberration, they had worse survival. So what did you attribute that to? 
We were not sure. Um, as I mentioned, it was a very small group of patients. Um, so I do think that that would need to be um, looked at in a larger study. So I don't know that we can draw any conclusions from that. But I think that if that's true, then, um, you know, that, that would definitely warrant further research efforts. So so just to, to summarize a little bit, because we said a lot of things, but between black and white patients with AML, which mutations are more prevalent in black patient population versus white and vice versa? Um, so we saw, um, like I mentioned, a higher rate of NPM1 and IDH2 mutations and a lower amount of WT1 mutations. Okay. Did you look at Hispanic patient population at all or Asian populations? No, I mean, probably. No, we, we tried okay. to keep it simple. So so part of this is this, uh, obviously, the um, prevalence of a genomic aberration. But when you say people have the same therapy, is it possible there's an element of, you know, pharmacogenomics? And I mean, is is that on the table? I definitely think it needs to be looked at um, because you kind of wonder about, you know, how people are, you know, metabolizing drugs or, you know, whether there's some sort of inherent resistance to the treatments that we currently use. Um, but no, I mean, that was definitely a question that came up in my mind was whether or not there was differences in pharmacogenomics. As far as I know, um, I, I'm not aware of any group that's currently looking at that, but um, but I definitely think it deserves a close look. Did you look, uh, Tina, on about transplant? Was there, uh, I know that sometimes obviously allogeneic transplant, you, you know, you're limited by having a donor, but nowadays it's easier to have donors than, than back in the day. Um, was there uh, similar rates of transplant or not really? So we actually don't know. Um, with the Alliance patients, a lot of those protocols um, did not allow transplant or you had to come off the study if you went into transplant. So we did not have that information available and it is a pretty significant limitation of the study. You know, I think um, we have we have thought about looking at transplant outcomes as well, but as of now, we did, we, we did not have that information available in ours. This is something you've observed in acute myeloid leukemia. What what were your next steps or what were your proposed uh, next steps to try to add additional answers to this question? It's a very, um, there's a lot of different directions that you can go, I think, with this research. And I think... Um, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot that can be done in this space. So um, I've, I've been in discussions with several people regarding next steps. I think we definitely need to validate our findings in a prospective um, analysis, because everything, everything that we did was all historical data. And there's some limitations associated with looking at retrospective data. But I think um, looking at a, at a prospective study would be important. The other thing that we could, we do need a lot more patients. And so um, black AML, so in general, AML is not very common in black patients. And so, and then on top of that, they're underrepresented in clinical trials. And so um, trying to, you know, find ways to improve, um, to improve enrollment of, of all patients with AML so that we can study these questions a bit better, um, I think is what's needed. Yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, answering the question about the genomic aberrations are more prevalent is one thing. 
But what's unique about what you did, I think, is that these patients all received the same therapy because they were on a clinical trial. Because oftentimes in my mind, in the real world, when I see some of these questions on disparities, you just never know what patients are receiving because there's no policing to things outside of a clinical trial. Yeah, you're right. And th this was all seven and three based chemotherapy. So cytarabine and anthracycline based therapy, which I, you know, the field is kind of moving away from that um, in general, I believe. And so that's, a good, that's a good segue for you to tell me what's exciting for you in AML. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was going to say that, you know, trying to validate our findings and the current um, treatment paradigm of, of AML, I think, is another thing that's going to be necessary in this era of, um, of you know, targeted therapies. And now what's what's more commonly used is um, a hypomethylating agent or low-dose cytarabine in combination with the BCL2 inhibitor venetoclax um, has gained a lot of press in AML and, and I would say has become, um, you know, frontline therapy for many patients um, with AML. I, I, I haven't sent anybody over for induction in a long time. That, that's a good question. I mean, so, so Tell me about what's like, you know, the future looks for AML. You mentioned venetoclax plus hypopathylating agents, and you have not sent patients for induction in a long time. Does this include younger patients? So let's say you've got a 50-year-old with AML. Are you going venetoclax HMA, or are you doing 7 and 3 in those patients? Um, so it really depends on the features of the disease. So if I have a 50-year-old with a complex karyotype and poor risk um, mutational features, I'm unlikely to refer them for 7 and 3 only because the response rates in that group are, are usually no more than 30 to 40 percent. And so essentially you're putting people in the hospital for 30 days plus with a lot of toxicities and not a great chance of achieving a remission. Um, however, a 50-year-old or even a 70-year-old with core binding factor AML um, or cytogenetically normal AML with an NPM1 mutation, I would still send those patients for 7 and 3 induction. Consolidation therapy, allogeneic transplant, I presume, in folks who are able to. In those who are unable to, what are you doing? Uh, for patients who are unable to move forward with transplant. Right. I have been using um, oral azacitidine a lot as maintenance therapy for transplant ineligible patients. And that seems to have been, that seems to be working for a lot of my patients in my practice. And I believe just the colleagues that I've interacted with have had good luck trying keeping their patients in remission. And that drug is generally well tolerated. The most um, significant toxicities people have reported for me have been all gastrointestinal. Um, but for the most part, um, people have enjoyed a good quality of life. It's an oral pill. Um, so it kind of saves them um, that interface with the healthcare system because AML patients are very high utilizers of clinic and healthcare. So I've been using oral azacitidine. Um, in my patients who are receiving uh, I'll, I'll use oral azacitidine in patients who potentially got induction chemotherapy with seven and three, and then um, and then I'll, I would transition them if they're not able to move forward with a transplant. For my patients who are receiving like a hypomethylating agent along with venetoclax, um, sometimes I will after. X number of cycles, it's different for different patients. Sometimes I'll drop the venetoclax because a lot of patients have start to have trouble with the toxicities. 
And I will either continue them on their hypomethylating agent until the disease comes back, or we sometimes have the conversation about oral azacitidine. And HIDAC, when do you use HIDAC? I use HIDAC after seven plus three. So um, once people have gotten just standard induction, um, seven plus three chemotherapy, I will use, I will consolidate with anywhere between two to four cycles of HIDAC, depending on age. Depending on age. And, and this is only in the good prognosis folks or anybody? No. Yeah. So the, I, I, I will put people through seven plus three if I feel like it is going to give them the best chance of going into remission and getting to transplant. And so certainly for my younger patients with good risk AML or even intermediate risk AML, um, I think that still remains a very viable option. But, it, it you know, it, it asks a lot from the patient and there's a lot of risk associated with it as well. Well, lots of exciting stuff are happening in AML. I think it's a fascinating work that you're doing, fascinating research that you're doing. We'll continue to watch how uh, what's happening, what's transpiring in terms of understanding the differences on the molecular level and pharmacogenomics and other things. But it's certainly important kind of research. And I really appreciate you sharing this with us. Oh, thank you, Chatty, for the invitation. It was It's always exciting to talk about AML, especially because it wasn't that long ago that we only had a couple of treatments to potentially offer people. And now there's a whole armamentarium of things that we can offer based on the different type of AML they have. So, um, so the types of discussions that I'm having with my patients are a lot different now. Well, that's wonderful. Dr. Tina Batnagar, thank you so much for coming on the Human Pulse. Thank you.